We're going to go ahead and get started. I, I do like the voice of God aspect of that. Um, so uh, I'm very pleased that uh, to be uh, the person up here to lead off this last panel. As usual, while those other two panels were good, we've kept the best panel for last, which is not a surprise to anybody, uh, as you've seen the people who are represented here. Um, in part, it's the best panel because it's about employers, and I'm, I'm really interested in employers and their behaviors and what they do, and um, um, in, in, in part because of the quality of the uh, employers and businesses that they representative. I'm Mark Popovich. I'm the director of the Good Companies, Good Jobs Initiative uh, at the uh, Aspen Institute Economic Opportunities Program. Uh, the work of the Good Companies, Good Jobs Initiative uh, really focuses on highlighting uh, exemplary employers who are taking the high road. Uh, we work on developing and sharing tools that improve job quality, and we look for new ways to measure and incentivize job quality. And in one of the unusual aspects of what we've done is we've developed some intellectual uh, uh, property uh, about measurement, and we've partnered with a for-profit entity called Working Metrics. Larry Schlang is in the back of the room, wave Larry, and Laura uh, Langley, who works with him, uh, to precisely do that. It, 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 it allows companies to report a minimal amount of data, but then be, uh, be uh, benchmarked against their peers in their sector and subsector by the quality of their people performance, uh, their uh, benefits that they provide, and also the job quality by diversity and inclusion by gender equity uh, and inclusion. So um, we also have represented in the room uh, my colleague at the Upskill, uh, uh, Upskill America uh, effort, uh, Jamie Fall. Jamie, stand up and say hi to folks. Um, and they, they also work a lot with employers around uh, training and advancement often inside the company. So this panel is, um, is about the choices that businesses can make I mean, clearly in America, companies can make money going low road. They can make money going high road. And part of the problem has been that too many companies have chosen to take the low road. Um, in many cases, good jobs, providing good jobs is good business. It pays off for the companies. And investing in their people is part of being able to produce that. And for many businesses, investing in their people is the only way to have a winning hand. And, that's a great example uh, represented up here. So we've got a great panel of business leaders to share their experience. They really do represent very different sectors, and things do very much differ by sector. They're very different size businesses. They have different capitalization or ownership structures. And they, but the one thing they all share in common is they're doing really great things. So um, we have uh, for our panel today, uh, Jen Briggs, um, who's a partner at Grit Business Consulting, Kevin Johnson, who's the Regional Chief Operations Officer, U.S. Retail Central Region at Ann, and Aaron Patankin, who's the CEO and co-founder at a really amazing bakery. Um, we've been eating their cookies downstairs, um, Ovenly. And then our moderator, Matt Heimer, who um, is a senior editor at Fortune Magazine, who not only has, um, is at Fortune, but he does long-form journalism, and he gets to work out of Chicago. All three of those are pretty wonderful things. So um, 
let me throw it to, let me remind people before I do that, since you've had a little bit of a break, to silence your phones and tweet using talk at, uh, hashtag talk opportunity. And let me throw it to Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. And thanks, everybody, for sticking around. Uh, and uh, I can't believe you gave away the secret about the cookies. That was supposed to be our secret for the panelists. Um, in the previous panel, uh, Gayatri uh, Agnew from uh, walmart.org uh, mentioned something that I had wanted to mention, too, which is this recent announcement uh, by the Business Roundtable. This was a, a couple of months ago. Uh, at Fortune, we thought this was actually important enough to devote a cover story to. Uh, but essentially, uh, the Business Roundtable, this very influential association of CEOs, for more than 20 years, their corporate mission statement had said that the paramount duty of any company was to serve its uh, stockholders, its essentially its owners. Uh, two months ago, uh, they threw that statement out after a long period of uh, soul searching. They replaced it with a statement that essentially said, well, a business's duty is to all of its stakeholders, uh, the community in which it operates, uh, its customers, uh, and, uh, and certainly most important for our purposes, um, its employees. And uh, this, really emphasized a theme that at Fortune we've been thinking about for a very long time, which is just this notion that uh, uh, many of the economic uh, problems and crises that we face today have to do with what had become kind of a myopic focus on the interests of, uh, of the owners, of the shareholders. Uh, and this notion that essentially if, uh, if, if all of the, if too much of the operation of any company is focused on what flows to the top, uh, then essentially Almost by definition, that's antithetical to the creation of good jobs and to a wider base of opportunities. Uh, and low and moderate income people increasingly are left behind as the very jobs uh, that uh, they would rely on for economic security really fall out of the lens of the, of the top decision makers. So um, it's incredibly encouraging for, uh, for me to be in a room like this and, and with a panel uh, such as this of people who are, are thinking so much more broadly about what a job, uh, about what a job can and should be, uh, and about the connection uh, between uh, good corporate citizenship and, and good jobs. Um, uh, in addition to us uh, differing from the other panels in that this is a, a group of, uh, of for-profit employers, uh, we also have sort of different perspectives. Uh, if I can grossly oversimplify, oversimplify uh, you know, Aaron is working with a company in, in an industry uh, where, where the assumption is that jobs are not that great. This is in, uh, in food and food service. And she's thinking about how to make those jobs great from the get-go. Um, Jen is, uh, through a, ver a variety of different positions, has been concentrating on redefining uh, jobs so that a job that might uh, sound dull on paper or unrewarding on paper becomes much more so. Uh, and then last but hardly least, uh, Kevin's at a large employer where there are an arrange of, a, a range of uh, what are traditionally thought of as good jobs, classic sort of white collar, information driven, knowledge based jobs. Uh, and uh, much of his work involves widening access of opportunity to those jobs. So uh, I'm going to get out of the way and let them speak more uh, for themselves at this point. But uh, I would like to start uh, with you, Kevin, uh, by uh, asking you to tell the room a little bit more about uh, the apprenticeship program that you started and uh, how it differs from the norm and who it's reaching and how it's working out for Aon. Yeah, the apprenticeship program is a, you know, incredible program. Uh, we've essentially taken, uh, you know, folks out of our community colleges, partnering with the community college to really, um, you know, give access to folks that probably wouldn't normally do it. When you think about 
um, financial services. We've typically, you know, taken folks from Ivy League schools and you know Big Ten type schools. I mean, that's traditionally where the pool of candidates, you know, are coming from almost exclusively. Um, you know, one of the interesting dynamics that's happening is is in financial services. You know, over the next five to ten years. You know, there's going to be uh, some natural attrition. Lots of folks, lots of talent is going to be leaving the business, and and we're starting to see the impacts of it today. Where we're actually trading off talent back and forth. You know, it, you know our competitors. We're just trading people. You know, back and forth. And so you start to look at this dynamic, and you just say, Wow, we, we're we're woefully short on the talent that we're going to need today. And if you look at where you know folks are going to be leaving the business, you know, in the future, just through natural attrition. It's going to be not only a problem for our firm, but for the entire financial services industry. So that um, you know really precipitated us, you know, looking in other areas to find uh, the talent. And so we began to partner with some of our community colleges to really light up this uh, new apprentice network. Um, these are folks that are you know obviously two-year uh, degrees. Um, we are working with them to uh, really help to mold some of the curriculum so that it's kind of tailored to the business that we're in so that people aren't coming in cold, but it's really uh, somewhat relative. Um, we offer not only the ability to uh, you know, allow folks to enter into this, this, this workforce that you know, we have traditionally never pulled from, but we're really giving them you know, access by means of uh, paying for part of their education. Uh, we're giving them, uh, paying for them, you know, to work. Uh, they're getting uh, benefits, you know, as well too. And the way that it works in our environment is, uh, we have, um, you know, if someone has a 12 credit hours or what have you, they're going to school for that amount of time, and then the rest of that time they're coming to work, you know, at our firm and getting trained on jobs. And a lot of uh, what happens is it's a two-year program. Uh, they spend most of the first year really trying to get orientated to the things that we, you know, uh, they need to get exposed to to help get them trained up a bit. Um, we are focusing on IT jobs. Uh, we're looking at HR particular roles. We're looking at marketing. Uh, this year we've kind of expanded this to uh, some of our broking jobs or broker, uh, brokering and insurance and, and healthcare and things of that nature. Um, we've been at this for about two years. We are on our fourth uh, cohort and have our second uh, class of folks graduating. And at the end of the day, what happens is when, when they're complete through the, the two-year program and they actually graduate, we guarantee them a job uh, you know, in, in the roles that they have been either working in or they have an opportunity to explore you know, other areas. Um, we started this venture with Accenture, uh, you know, and, and there's a network right now today over this two years of about 26 firms uh, that are doing this in the Chicagoland areas where it starts. Um, right now, there's probably a little less than 500 um, apprentices, you know, in the Chicagoland area. And our goal is to hit uh, 1,000 by the end of next year. And you can see that over these two years, you know, by those numbers alone, that this have an opportunity to really grow, you know, at an uh, exponential rate. So it's a, it's a wonderful program. I take a great sense of pride in it. And given, you know, where I came from growing up in inner city, um, I, I didn't have this opportunity. I, I literally had to do it the very hard way. Um, but I'm so proud, you know, of what we're doing because it is opening up doors like never before.
Thanks. I, some applause started, and I'm, I was glad to hear it. So, <laughs> thank you, um, Jen. I want to move on. I, I know you've had a lot of different roles, and at any given moment, have a lot of different roles with companies. But but they sort of but the common thread has to do with increasing employee engagement and often working with uh, direct employee ownership. Uh, can you tell the assembled crew a little more about that? Yeah. So I think you know employee engagement right now is a hot topic in the HR world, and we're in our work where we got it right is it's not an HR program. So employee engagement has to be the way the companies run. And so whether it's New Belgium where I spent almost 13 years, it was not programmatic. It's an operating system. It's the business mindset of all the people that work there. And so when you have that, it creates this really interesting system of, of rights and responsibilities, of sharing of risks and rewards, where everybody's in it together. Um, and so New Belgium was an ESOP, which is Employee Stock Ownership Plan. The company's owned in the trust. We had the good fortune of being founded by you know, a wonderful person, Kim Jordan, and her husband at the time, Jeff Liebisch, who came into business with a mindset of they wanted to do something more. So our challenge as their, their leadership team was how to scale up a business and maintain these wonderful um, ideals that they had. And, you know, employee engagement was more than just being engaged in a job. It's about being engaged in the success of the business. It's about coordinating activities so that you can really make decisions that grow value. Um, so there's just all these wonderful things. And, and so this is what's, I think, important is it's not just the ESOP. It's having a participative management, open book management, servant leadership approach to a company that's really important. Um, and also, you know, New Belgium and the companies I work with now, we're not perfect. Um, it's an imperfect system. There's a lot of mistakes we make. There's a lot of tensions and trade-offs you have to resolve in business. And what I love about these businesses is the transparency encourages people trying to solve these problems together versus some elite group of management who's taking it on or you're just going to pretend that everything's okay. Um, there's been some criticism of the roundtable that it's purpose washing. Um, you know, a purpose-based company like New Belgium or PFS Brands or any of the other companies, they don't sweep it under the rug. They take it on that we're not fulfilling the best that we could be as a corporate citizen and take the challenge. You know, New Belgium's more known for its environmental sustainability, and we had to admit that we create waste. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we use water, we take glass, and so what are we going to do as a business to help mitigate some of those impacts that we're having on the environment and the community surrounding us? How can we give back? How can we operate differently to be good at what we did? And even in the purpose statement, part of the purpose statement was um, to show that business can be a force for good. So it's kind of a laboratory where every day you're trying to make right decisions. And sometimes you make wrong ones, but you try to make good on them. And just try to, every time there's a tension, you try to get better from it. And what are some, uh, if I could just follow up in mm -hmm. brief, what are some examples, or what's an example of a kind of decision that a rank and file employee at an ESOP or any company might be involved in, mm -hmm. in, in the service of that purpose that someone might not be at kind of a more traditional corporation? Well, probably one of the classic examples at New Belgium that, that you can see on the shelf is there's a beer called Ranger. Um, that was named that way after the employees because that was really an idea that came from inclusive strategic planning. So in more conventional companies, some group of super smart management are going to go into a, a hall and talk about all the wonderful things. We went to uh, parks near rivers. 
um, and talked about what our future should be together. And so that's where the Ranger beer came from. It's one of New Belgium's more uh, popular and profitable beers. And if that idea hadn't emerged, um, we would have had some problems um, financially. And so people are not just getting efficient on the bottom line, which is where we tend to look at process engineering and blah, 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 that kind of stuff, which is all important too. I didn't mean to blah, blah, blah. But to me, where the value can come is, uh, is when you're creating value, when you're looking at the marketplace, when you have everybody organizing around what's the market need, what's the consumer need. Um, because really the people are gonna, who are gonna know what the consumers need are the people who are interacting with consumers. Um, you can buy all kinds of data and that's great, but the people that are gonna see what the trends are and how they're emerging are people that are actually out there. So involving everyone in the strategy. And so that's just one example of a real tangible thing that any of you guys could see anywhere if you went to a grocery store or liquor store of something. And it's named that way because rangers are called, our salespeople are called rangers. Not We didn't name anything typical. Mm -hmm. um, the, the top executive team were called missionaries. There was a middle management group called Compass because they were saying which way was north. And then their rangers are salespeople. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, these ideas, ideas come from everywhere and ingenuity exists in all of us. And so if you're not including those voices, the voice of the worker is powerful, um, incredibly powerful. So it's a mistake to exclude that. That's a really good point, thank you. Um, Aaron, you're now, has it been 10 years since Evanly was founded? And you have sort of a different idea about how to include people in, a, in what's essentially a food service business from, from the get-go. Can you talk a little bit more about how you, uh, how, you, how you originally designed the jobs when the company started? Um, well, actually, it, was, it wasn't exactly from the get-go. So I have a social justice and nonprofit background. Started the company kind of by accident. Uh, ended up baking myself for a year and a half. Never wanted to do that. And, uh, you know, <laughs> but in that time was really good experience because I had never worked really with a team that I loved. Sad story. But, you know, I was really able to build a team around you know, making cookies. And it really showed me what culture could be. And so I got really excited about that. And uh, about a year and a half in, my business partner, Agatha, who is a uh, trained social worker, and I could finally sit down, breathe, and say, okay, we don't have to bake anymore. Are we just making money off cookies? This is so weird. And so we were like, what, are, what is the point of this business besides just scalability? And that never felt Right, and we didn't have any of the you know business language knowledge, and we just thought, let's do something that can help communities that we're working with. Because oh my gosh, wow, we're employers now, um, and you know I had worked in low-income communities uh, in doing arts education for ten years, and I got very jaded on that life, and I just felt like the nonprofit community. It's really hard. I always work for small nonprofits. You're constantly chasing the money, constantly in that yearly funding cycle. And it was really unbelievably freeing to not be in that and to have control over my own revenue stream and control over the growth. Um, so about a year and a half in, by happenstance, one of our employer, one of our staff or uh, customers was a social worker for an organization called Getting Out and Staying Out. And they do job training for informally incarcerated and justice involved young men who tip, many of them have gone through Rikers Island. Um, and so he sat down with us and said, you know, would you consider hiring some people there? And at this point it is true. We did already have good jobs. We didn't realize that though. You know, the way we 
created our benefits was by taking my old employee handbook and Agatha's old employee handbook and just mashing them together and being like, this is how many vacation days we'll offer. We just never thought that you didn't do that. That wasn't, yeah. that was what we thought jobs were. Like we weren't like, let's have a good job strategy. Now we do. Um, but it became more than that because we realized that we wanted to be intentional about who we were hiring. And that's when we really realized the opportunity for scaling good jobs. Um, and that was really the start of it. So it started with just basic benefits that most people are AN are probably getting from day one. Um, and immediately it came out that we were like these really good employers just because we offered vacation time. You know, like this is how messed up the food industry is, right? Like you don't have anything. You know, you're a line cook, forget about it. Um, and so once we started becoming intentional, we started really looking at what building good jobs could be for us and started getting into reading about it and knowing about it. And ever since that point, you know, we're a small-ish business. You know, we have about 65 staff, five stores, 300 wholesale clients. But every time we have a little money, we invest it back into our staff. And, you know, I think it's interesting to say, there's a lot of arguments we were talking about this beforehand. It's like, good jobs are good business. Yeah, it's true, but I'm kind of tired of that argument. Good jobs is a moral obligation. And <laughs> I'm just... Not having good jobs is the biggest BS stuff that's ever happened to this economy. And it wasn't always that way. And there was Milton Friedman, and then there was the Brown Table. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that yeah. they've come out and they've switched what they believe the mission of companies should be. But we need to back out of many decades of only considering shareholder value. So that's yeah. sort of where we come from at Ovenly, and also just have two leaders who happen to come out of a nonprofit background, which really guides what we do. Uh, so in your industry and in a lot of industries, the rationale for the inadequacy of pay or benefits is usually something along the lines of this industry is too competitive, the margins are too small, so I'm sorry, but uh, you know you don't get paid leave or you don't get this or you don't get that. Um, how, in your experience, you found that that's not true, what's been the way to square that circle? Or is that just sort of an ideological thing that we should be shoving aside? I think that it's just hard. First of all, small business is hard. I don't know if there are any small yes. business owners in here, but it's hard. Um, and had Agatha and I had no idea that people weren't giving these benefits, like I think that maybe we would have had a different perspective too. But I think one of the problems in the food industry, and you probably have experience with this, is there is like a cycle of abuse that needs to be broken where you know, a lot of times chefs are trained that like they just earn minimum wage, they don't get benefits, and then those people become business owners and then they do the same thing or they provide shift pay, there's wage theft, there's all sorts of bad stuff. So I think one thing is breaking that cycle and you know, really a, we have a strategy we call radical responsibility and it's about education, speaking, um, open hiring and good jobs, sustainability and you know, cake. So we really try to talk to our fellow business owners through various groups that we're involved in about how they can incorporate better practices. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that people in small business and very creative industries like food, the most food company owners are coming from creative backgrounds. They were chefs, many artists. It's really surprising how many artists, dancers, actors become entrepreneurs in the food space. I think it's because we all love food and it just feels like such an accessible way to become an entrepreneur. Um, those people, God love them, don't know how to make a projection. You know, like there's a lot of 
not, there's like not a lot of knowledge around how to actually accurately project your finances into the future. And what people don't take into account is the real cost of wages, the real cost of benefits, and the real cost of paying themselves. But I think if we could get help people get behind that cue ball and actually start making models that are based on good jobs, we would see a proliferation of them. But right now, I think that people say that they can't afford it because they are, you know, I think on one hand, that's not true for a lot of people. On the other hand, I think a lot of people are suffering and desperate and they don't know how to create a cash flow positive business and access to financing is very difficult. Sure. So I think it's a kind of many part reason why that happens. And it sounds like it's also a, a cultural barrier in a sense too. If you if you if you don't grow up in an atmosphere or work in an atmosphere where uh, the discipline of cash flow and the P and L is part of your life, you're not sure what to do when you're off on your own. Um, I know that that would not be the case at Aon, where probably a P and L is something you learn about on day one. But um, I need to be in that program. But yes, yeah, <laughs> me too. Uh, but but it's but I mean I, I imagine we were talking earlier about how um, there is sort of a big cultural there's a different kind of cultural gap for the folks coming in for this apprenticeship because a lot of them don't really necessarily have a, a sort of um, uh, like an office job role model in their families. Um, can, can you talk a little bit more about, about that and how you work through it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a challenge. And, and just to go back to your comment earlier, you know, Aaron, you know, I too have owned a small business and, and part of the dynamic that people suffer is, is that you can know some of those things, but you know if you don't even know how to price yourself, you know in the market there's no way for you because you know there is a real expense involved with it, right? So it's not made up. You have to be able to sustain that. So people do that because they don't even have the cash flow coming in. But from an Aon perspective, you know, um, you know, bringing some of the, the apprentices in, like you said, you know, culturally, you know, some of them are first generation folks that even go into college, right? Let alone having someone that worked, you know, in a office environment or in corporate America, you know, as opposed to some of their counterparts, you know, who have come, their parents have come from Ivy League schools, Big Ten schools, you know, their parents run corporations. And so just by, you know, being in the house with them and living with them, they, they get exposed to it, even though they don't pay attention, mm -hmm. but they do inherently pick up some of these things. And so there's a great amount of intentionality that goes in. And, and I think it's helpful for people, you know, like myself, um, I spent a lot of time talking to apprentices because I too lived in the places where they live. I understand, you know, uh, walking into a room, how you feel, you know, inadequate. Even to this day, I will walk in a room, you know, that's majority, you know, uh, you know, uh, led, and and I still feel somewhat inadequate. I feel like I have to prove myself every day. So you have these, you know, kids or young adults that are coming into these corporations, and they think everybody's watching them. Right. And to a certain extent, they are. Right. Um, but I think part of what we do really well is partner folks up with with mentors and, and and have a lot of discussions to help them understand, well, what you're really experiencing is typical you know, business. And, and we all have expectations that we all have to live up to. But you have a part in this. So there's balance in, you know, the discussions that I have and I help to set part of the expectations on how they need to grasp the opportunity because I too have come from the place where they've been. It hasn't been an easy road for me. And while I can sit here in my suit and all those things, 
you know, my road wasn't very easy at all, okay? And so I, you had to work for it. So there's a great amount of responsibility, you know, that comes, you know, with it all. And it truly does take, you know, a village, you know, to, to raise up, you know, any of these things that we've been talking about today. If you, if you come in and you try and rest all the responsibility in one area, whether it's government, whether it's education, or whether it's the corporations, you're already going to fail, right? We all have a responsibility, including the recipient, you know, of that benefit or, or whatever it is that we're trying to put out there. So from our perspective, um, you have to understand that it's evolutionary, right? And you have to be willing to be flexible. You have to be willing to learn along the way and really adjust the things that you thought it was going to be a certain way coming in. You thought it was going to be easy. And what you find is it's not easy. But you have to be willing to learn, not only from them, but there's also a learning that has to happen on the other side, too. And I think we try and do a, um, you know, we have a pretty good balance in trying to do it. Doesn't mean that we do it perfectly all the time, but I think we create, you know, an environment where we can have some real conversations. And, and, and part of the way we do that is through, you know, an advisory board, an apprentice advisory, of which some apprentices sit on there. So we get real feedback, you know, real time. Mm -hmm you know, for things that aren't working well. So that's the way that we kind of deal with that. Sure. What are, what's, a, what's an example of sort of a common stumbling block in that relationship between the apprentices and, the, and their, their new colleagues? Well, I, I think, you know, it, I mean, it's just a cultural, you know, mm -hmm. dynamic, right? So think about it. If I grew up in an inner city where there's poverty, where there's gangs, where there's, you know, violence and, and things. And so you live in a world where you have to stand strong. And if anyone gives you a sideways look, you know, you're going to try and figure out how you have to check them, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if I come in with that mentality into corporate America, no one's trying to, you know, harm you or bring anything. But you come in with that mentality and it's automatically going to create a conflict. And so somebody has to be there to really help them understand, no, that's not what you're experiencing first. They're trying to really figure out what's going on here, right? And so that's part of the education that we have to give our, you know, the colleagues that are there. But them coming in, they need that help to help them understand these little dynamics that are going on aren't ones to, to try and hurt you or harm you, mm -hmm. but people just trying to understand. Sure. Thanks. Jen, I know uh, with a lot of the companies that you're working with, uh, the employee engagement model that, that you endorse is sort of not the norm. I know you're working with some companies that maybe are changing from a, a more traditional model to that one. Uh, what are some of the cultural challenges of that transition, or what are some of the, some of the pain points maybe where people struggle with new roles or struggle with new relationships to each other? Yeah, so if we could broadly call it open book management or participative management, I think there's just learning. One of the things that we said was have a responsible voice and an active voice. So how do you help people be educated to have that responsible voice, understand the financial dynamics of the company, teach them, but more importantly, just like what you said underlying that, is dignity and self-worth. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I learned a lot was you can't really be an owner of a company, an employee-owned company, if you can't first own yourself. And so yeah. when you have high self-worth, it enables like a stronger level of participation. It helps people trust their voice. Um, if you've come from a conventional com company where there's lots of former formal layers, and then you go into a company that it might still have some hierarchy, but it's more for order than for power. Um, Order and power are two different things, you know, and in large organizations, as you scale up, you need to create order, but how you distribute power is very different. 
So people have to get retrained in that. And I know even for myself, I came from a conventional company into New Belgium, and it was small at the time when I joined. It took me probably about a year to get used to not having strict rules, mm -hmm. um, not having <clears throat> things pointed out. I was in HR in a conventional company, so I was one of the rule makers. And so all of a sudden, I had to move from uh, directive approaches to influential approaches. I had to learn how to be a nudger. I had to learn how to grow people. Um, I had to learn just a whole different way of, of framing up a company. And so I think that kind of happens to everyone. I've talked to other people that joined open systems companies, and we're just used to closed systems. That's the way we're trained. That's what we learn in business school often. Um, you know, so teaching an open system is different. And uh, so that's what we do. Like the Beister Institute's at University of California, San Diego, um, they try to help teach companies how to be successful ESOPs. Um, Rutgers and Dowie, the Democracy at Work Institute, they recently partnered with uh, together and did a participative management primarily to co-ops, worker-owned co-ops. And so just teaching, you know, you have these two owners transitioning from control and close to being more open, and then employees tr changing from being in rules to, wow, I get to influence what's the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very dynamic system. It's lots of fun, but I actually think it's harder um, because it's much easier just to give some rules and expect for people mm -hmm. to follow them. Um, but you want to have a dynamic system that includes everybody's voices. It takes longer. Um, you end up with conflicts that you need to resolve, but you end up with a more profitable company. So I think that's the challenge, right, is yeah. how do you help people um, not be linear and just say, let's do this, and to really connect in a way that makes a more financially healthy company. Um, when the social engine sits first ahead of the financial engine, that's really confusing for a lot of people. We're just used to the financial engine, you know, supporting the people. Mm -hmm. It's just those two are flipped. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it sounds simple, but um, you get into the system and it's, it's, a, it's just different. It's more dynamic. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of goes back to the, that premise over, over kind of overarching for our panel, this notion mm -hmm. of good jobs being good business. I mean, for sort of for the whole group, what are some ways in which uh, changing and enhancing and improving these jobs seems to benefit uh, your company as a whole? I mean, is it bringing more people in? Is it helping with retention? I mean, what are some of the ways in which the, 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 uh, the positive feedback is coming back to the whole organization? Kind of open question for anybody. <laughs> I think the place where it's most successful for us is in, high, you know, Again, we're not a company that can pay the couple hundred thousand dollar a year salaries, but we get the couple hundred thousand dollar a year people on our management side because, I mean, I've seen such a vast change from 10 years ago today to the people who apply to the, our company because young, really smart, motivated people want to work for mission-based organizations. And it's been, it's been so surprising the type of talent we'll get for entry-level management and administrative positions. Um, so that's been great. And I think our, you know, we have a really small administrative team. They're only about, and managers, there are only eight of us on that side. And so all of us do a lot of work because we're really cash efficient. Um, I think on the hiring side, it helps us retain good people. But I, you know, I'm going to be the first one to admit, you know, when the type of hiring we do, about 80% of back of our house staff 
come from at-risk zip codes and 25% are formerly incarcerated. I think one of our bigger challenges is we're offering all these great benefits. We're, you know, we, we offer paid training. We give everyone $350 to take any class they want as long as we approve it. You know, we have vacation time. We have health care. We have you know, uh, primary and secondary caregiver leave. We do all the things. But it's hard to retain someone who's 24 who just spent 14 to 23 at Rikers Island. And I think that that's something, you know, it's helpful in terms of we can staff pretty easily because we have job partners and people want to come work for us because they've heard that we do interesting stuff on the employer side. But it's, it's, it's almost easier to get people to come to work for us than to retain them in the hourly positions. Whereas on the administrative side, you know, we have people stay for very long periods of time. Are there things, uh, I mean, are there, uh, you, you mentioned having these outside groups that you're, uh, that you're partnering with. Are, are they providing some of the support and the training and the, and the cultural backup that someone who's been incarcerated for a long time oh, yeah. wouldn't otherwise have? Yeah, I think that, you know, we have learned a lot over time. We really, ha if we're going to employ people who've never had, so we have open hiring practices so you don't have to come and with a resume to work for us. But if you are one of those people who's coming with zero job experience, we you have to have a recommendation. And so that's been very helpful because, you know, it's like that self-selecting thing that you're talking about. You have to want to have that job. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is helpful. And I think someone from the Center for Employment Opportunities is here today, and that's one of our job partners. So that is essential because, you know, you know, one day I want to see a social worker in like every company because I think that would be very helpful, but we're not social workers and there are certain aspects to people's lives that we are not well equipped to deal with. So it's very helpful for us to be able to pick up the phone and call a social worker when there is an issue. It's very helpful to us when there is an opening to pick up the phone and say, hey, who's someone that you think would be really great in this position? This is what it, you know, it entails. So I don't think we could do the hiring that we do without those partners. Kevin, you were talking uh, earlier about uh, some of the ways in which a lot of the typical Aon hire tends to have come from, they come from pretty similar backgrounds. They've got a lot in common. This apprenticeship program is working out to, uh, to people from a very different demographic largely. What are, what are some of the ways that the perspectives that they bring in uh, you know, change the way that Aon may, might make a decision or change the way you're doing business on some particular kind of a problem? Sure. I mean, you know, being in the uh, financial services business, you know, um, specifically, you know, brokering around retirement and health and, and transferring risk. I mean, it's heavy advisory work. It's lots of consulting. And so having, uh, you know, that diversity, not just, you know, ethnicity, but just in, in thought and the way that we think, you know, breeds incredible, you know, innovation, you know, and what have you. And so if you take someone who has come from a challenging, uh, you know, background and what have you, very creative the way they solve problems, right? Not that the other one is a bad way. I mean, it's good, but when you put them together, I mean, it creates a dynamic that that can't be beat in a lot of cases. In fact, we've we've really uh, you know fashioned our business around being what we call Aon United, right? And 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 it's really about delivering the best to our clients you know, through the power of collaboration and the power of thinking, you know, together, the power of, you know, bringing uh, those different experiences, 
together because inherently someone's going to, you know, come up with something different than what you would have thought of. We call this, you know, kind of an echo chamber. When you work with people that are similar to you, they tend to come up with very similar ideas or there's a risk of group think and things like that, right? And so someone who has a totally different experience will say something that everybody will go, where did that come from, you know? And, and it will create a different dynamic which will challenge the, the typical or traditional thinking, mm -hmm. which will really press us to think bigger and broader, which means better solutions you know, for our clients and you know, better experiences for our clients, I mean, for our colleagues, because they learn more as a result of that. Mm -hmm. It's a good point that you bring up the clients. I mean, uh, we were talking about, uh, we were talking downstairs about how the, how a consumer perceives uh, someone who has a good job is a, is a very different dynamic than how a consumer perceives someone who's just kind of toiling away in some like drudgery. Uh, and Jane, you were talking about that, some of the ways in which like the, you, you see the employee engagement sort of through the customer relationship. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm the chairman of a board of a small company in Birmingham, Alabama, about 120, 140 people. And when they engage with a client, um, it's not just that one uh, person and one client, the client gets the wisdom of the crowd for everybody that works. And so they have this really interesting way of interacting with each other to give better client service, to solve problems. They're in a, a really technical field. And so there's there's lots of ways to solve problems. And I think that's interesting. But this is also a minority ESOP. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I think most of us know if you have a strong employment brand, you have a reduced turnover, um, you know, better tend to be easier to hire because people want to work for you. But I think the employee ownership adds this dynamic of avoiding short-termism because people are invested in a trust that has probably a vesting schedule. They're going to grow value over time. So how do you look at investments and choices? Um, you can have a short-termist approach and just maximize you know, the price for this one client, or you can have a long-termist approach on you know what, we might give on price here and choose for a long-term relationship with that um, company. So that happens in all kinds of companies, whether it's food or beer or tech, which are the and engineering, the fields that I'm involved with now, people choose the long-term. Mm -hmm. um, they may have an investment year or two, and the stock may you know, sit flat or go down, but there's a growth imperative in ESOPs almost. And so people are looking at how do we grow value? How do we grow it together? Um, you know, they've, the trust has bought this company from selling shareholders and so they need it to grow so that they can repurchase, you know, or pay the debt to that, to that shareholder. So there's this commitment to growth and smart growth. And this is what I think the companies, at least that I work with, um, they're driven by values. A lot of what you said, you know, that there's a purpose. And so you don't, the shareholder, is the employees, and the employees care about doing work in a ethical, very conscious, um, thoughtful way that's gonna keep and protect the company in the long term. And that's, that's a really important difference in companies like those. What kind of, uh, a question I wanna ask to each of you, uh, if someone came to you for advice about how to improve the jobs under their umbrella and how to essentially be kind of a better employer in that sense, uh, what kind of advice would you give them and maybe what would you, uh, what kind of pitfalls would you warn them of? Um, Aaron, I know you're transitioning into being more of a, of a consultant in a sense, and uh, so I'll start with you. Um, 
So we made a huge mistake a few years ago where we decided we were going to offer like a zillion benefits and all these discounts and I don't know, like cell phone, I, tons of benefits. We joined a PEO and like no one used anything. And you know, the problem was that we didn't go to our staff and say, what benefits do you want us to be investing in? Mm -hmm. uh, duh. We can uh, talk to you about that, Aaron. <laughs> 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 and, you know, so I think that that's the first thing is, it, and it's so funny because we're really good about actually ask, asking ourselves what we want, but we just were like, yeah, we're going to do this and the, everyone's going to love it. Very bad decision. So I think the first thing I would ask it, or advise people is ask your staff what they actually want out of the good job you're trying to create for them. And the answer is going to be different from for a lot of people, but generally what I've found is that people want to have the tools to do their job well and to be paid in a way that they can live their life. That's like the basic thing. And so we've gone back and looked more at those tools and how we can develop better training systems for people so that you know even if they're washing dishes, they feel like they have the proper tools, and that goes through every single position. So I think that was that would be one of my biggest pieces of advice. Thanks. Jen, how about you? Well, one of the things I like is if you open the books, you open minds. And so you're looking beyond a job. Certainly there's stuff that has to get done, and we have you know, these, these duties that have to get done, but how you do them can be given, people can be given a lot more agency of how they are done if they understand how the company works. And so I really strongly believe in distributing leadership. And to do that, you kind of have to see beyond a job. You have to see about the experience that that person's having. And the other thing, too, is um, like what you said, the, the benefits in training are not perks. You know, if, if you have parents who have children you know, who have strep throat and can't come to work, their mind's not going to be on doing their job or being a good business citizen, it's going to be, I have a sick child at home and then the daycare issues that we're talking about. So those are investments into the workforce. Training, you know, that people see training as a perk. Training is critical for being able to teach people how to do all the aspects of their job. So being financially literate wouldn't be tied to a job. Mm -hmm. That's tied to being a great uh, business citizen inside that structure. So I my advice would be actually to see beyond jobs, mm -hmm. um, to see beyond skills, to see about soft skills and how do we connect to each other, see about growing social emotional intelligence. And it's all about the experience that you're going to have when you're together and creating a more productive company, not just more productive jobs. Mm -hmm. So I think the job for me is kind of at the baseline. And then there's all this potential that exists beyond the job. Mm -hmm. Kevin, how about you? Yeah. Um, I have a saying that I live by that I think applies here, and that saying goes, even if you're on the right track, if you sit there long enough, you'll eventually be run over. <laughs> always keep moving, always keep growing, right? You have to be open for feedback when I think about the apprenticeship program. Um, you know, we're different than the way we were when we first started. There was a lot of things that we didn't know that we didn't understand, but through frequent you know, feedback and communication, but just not getting information, but doing something about it. That really, um, you know, lended itself to developing the program, right? It's all evolutionary over time. Uh, we like to refer to that in corporate America as 
corporate engagement, right? Mm -hmm. You get feedback, you know, from your your colleagues, and and you make adjust. If you care, you make adjustments that really matter, right? And it's the same thing. It doesn't matter what program or what 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 you're trying to institute. You got to have, um, you know. Uh, you know, a mechanism, you know, for feedback. Um, we've developed a, a playbook that we readily share with anyone that's interested, you know, in doing this. And we share it, you know, throughout the network. Um, was at an event yesterday and, and someone was interested and it's like, hey, yeah, we'll, we'll help you, right? So we're learning from each other. And just because we started it, it don't mean that we have the market cornered on really understanding it because inherently other firms are gonna have different experiences. And so this is why the network is important because we continue to share with one another. In fact, we have um, you know, at least quarterly uh, events that we do all together, you know, the 26 you know, firms that are participating with all of the apprentices just so that we can meet each other and learn from one another and have people talk with one another. And there's inherently a lot of good information that's shared. I, uh, I wanted to pose one last question to the whole group, and then I wanted to open things up to questions from the floor. Uh, what role can or should uh, policymakers be playing to sort of help you accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? Um, and this could be at any level, state, local, federal. Um, I realize we didn't talk about this in the green room, so. <laughs> so raise your hand. No? Okay. Well, uh, I'll start. I mean, again, I'll go back to the term, and I'm going because I think it'll be easier for me to just say this, but uh, um, it takes a village. Mm -hmm. It absolutely does. And so we've been meeting with, um, you know, congressmen and women, you know, um, for other reasons, but they also have been intrigued, you know, around, you know, this apprenticeship program. And they look at their own, you know, economic challenges around jobs and things like that. And they definitely see that this is a way to really be able to do things. So I think, you know, we have their attention and, and lots of folks are looking at this. So I think the timing is ripe for, you know, getting that interaction and, and, and really working with one another so that we can formulate a strategy that works for everybody. So I'll give you an example. You know, you know, we're a, a risk advisory company. We're retirement and health and all these things. I'm not a transportation guy, but someone in a local municipality, you know, they may have, you know, transportation that they might be able to provide, you know. And so I think if we're thinking together, we can solve some of these complicated, you know, issues, but very legitimate issues. You, you know, some of the panelists uh, prior to us talked about rural areas. And so there aren't, you know, easy answers for some of that stuff. But I know if I tried solving it by myself, it's definitely going to be tough. But if I put a few heads together of people that can actually do something to make things happen, I think we can come on something that could be workable. And then the other piece is, is um, I believe that there's room or there's a place for you know, folks and recipients supporting one another you know, as well. If I think about apprentices and what have you, they're part of a network as well. They can support one another. If, if one apprentice you know, has transportation and there's two others that don't and they live near each other, then guess what? you're part of the resource for them to get there, right? You're all sharing in the same benefit. So this isn't an answer that one entity on its own, educational, governmental, or corporate America, it's the responsibility of those individuals that are receiving the benefit as well to actually contribute to it, to help perpetuate you know, this good thing to create good jobs over time. Well, and as it gets greater scale, then those benefits Absolutely. become greater. So. Uber. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I think it's time to throw the uh, things open to the floor. So I'm start with this gentleman here uh, in the blue 
shirt. Blue sweater. You know, uh, some people, when they think they have a good company, they contract out a lot of their work. So if there's anything about Apple, well, most people that actually work for Apple probably are pretty good jobs. They're treated pretty well. But actually, the cell phones are not made by Apple. The, the people there are treated very poorly. I'm not sure about the beer company you talked about. You actually brew the beer yourself, or you just did the advertising. So to what extent do you see the company having responsibility to sort of try and force upon their contractors you know, that they also provide decent wages and benefits for their employees? I think that's a really good question. Uh, actually, one of the things that I've been very focused on personally is creating scalability in that supply chain, uh, in the food world especially. Like, we make everything we do, but do we pick the sugar and process it and bring No. Um, so I think that transparency in supply chain is something that's really important. And actually, working with Working Metrics, I'm starting a sausage company, which is a true fact. Um, <laughs> and work in, I've done, worked with Working Metrics and Ovenly to assess our good jobs. And now we're actually going to take that tool and bring it to the vendors for the sausage company. And they will have to be at least in line with the industry in their area in terms of benefits and pay in order for them to even work with us. And you know, this is not a new strategy. IKEA does this. There are a lot of companies that are doing this, but I think it's a really relevant point and needs to keep happening in grander scales with bigger businesses because otherwise we will, like somewhere, somewhere along the supply chain, someone doesn't have a good job. And I think that especially big businesses have a real opportunity to change things almost overnight. Um, you know, I'm sure that a lot of you know about XBO Logistics and what's happening with Amazon. Like, if Amazon just changed their contract tomorrow, that could change thousands of people's jobs. So I think it's a really important point and something that even small companies like Ovenly or like Seymour can do because you can start using some tools to say, here's the basic stuff that you have to hit for me you to, to, for you to get my money. And I think that's in, from the environmental side. I think we've seen a lot more of that on the um, environmental Absolutely. side, where mm -hmm. you know you're choosing through your procurement, your your supply chain that on that of making sure that those companies you're working with are environmental. And I think we can take that to labor and use some of those same practices. But I also think the other thing is um, when can you be an influencer versus when do you require? You know, I work with a company that works with um, stores like convenience stores. And they're taking the approach of trying to educate people and help them see opportunities where you can improve. And so I think both sides have merit of you can be a leader and try to influence and teach companies how to be better, or you can use kind of the force of, of control and power to force them into it. And I think those are two tools that need to be used smartly and differently. Um, because I think if we can influence more companies to change and get that in a nudging, more positive way, we'll see a lot of positive impacts. But there's going to be a time where we have to, especially the much larger companies with a lot more influence and money, can force change through in a way um, that small companies just can't. Um, I also don't want to see small companies go out of business because they just, they're not in a situation where they can. So I'm not sure where that line is, though, of when you make that choice of influencing versus forcing. That's, I just want to say one thing. I think it also helps you choose your vendors. You know, I think as a small company, small companies, uh, ha, there's so much economic value in the business that we're creating. 
And I think the big thing is it's not necessarily forcing, it's helping you choose the better vendors from the get-go mm -hmm. to have some sort of basic metric for who you'll be willing to work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can't force someone to do business your way, but you can choose not to work with someone right, who does that. Right, exactly. Business, I think Mark framed it in terms of the, the choices that businesses make. Uh, and exercising that choice is, is one of your options. Uh, a woman in green in the center had a question, and also uh, uh, here in black. Maybe I'll take two at a time, and then we'll address them. Thank you. Um, one of the themes I've heard throughout all of the panels today is really a consistent focus on the individual customer, worker, and learner experience, which I think is absolutely critical. And this panel in particular has really highlighted the necessity of feedback loops for the business to be profitable and just as a moral responsibility. And so I'd actually like to pick up on the very last question you asked about policy influence, because one of the challenges that I hear working most closely with federal and state and also local lawmakers is they really struggle to bring small and medium-sized employers to the table. So with that in mind, I'd love to ask for you all to reflect very briefly on what would you like for lawmakers to do to engage you in this process? You have critical data around the supportive services workers need to be successful. You have critical data on the pathways to learning and success in a job. How can, uh, how can lawmakers engage you more successfully? Thank you very much, and we'll come right back to that. My, mine is a little bit more focused on management. Um, so uh, we talked. You talked about participative management style. Um, I, I grew up in Silicon Valley, basically. You know that is what the mantra was from the get-go. The management training there is extensive in participative management style, management by objectives, that sort of effort. So from the first moment, the employee had an understanding of what their boundaries were in terms of their decision-making capability and their authority, right, and their responsibility. And so that structure allowed them to allowed us to be successful individuals or not successful individuals, depending on how well trained that manager was, right? So with some of this broader implementation of these sorts of capabilities or, or these sorts of uh, management styles, uh, where do you see, uh, or, uh, what is your opinion about and what is your uh, investment toward the actual training of managers to ensure that they're actually supporting that and providing that 360 analysis view of their own sort of um, you know, capabilities and their, their sort of, um, yeah, you know what it is. <laughs> I'm ranting right now. Not at all, thank you. Um, Sure, but but very but very key. Um, why don't we do that one first, and then we'll come back to yours if that's okay. So essentially, training managers to support uh, the participatory. Yeah, company. I think they're, that's the linchpin of making it all come together. Because if you get managers who don't believe in it or don't know how to do it, either way, um, they'll break the system. And so helping people, one, it's it's kind of going back to some of the earlier things. This is a mindset, you know, helping people understand, you know, that. We all have value and we all have ingenuity and voices count and then helping give them very tactical skills of, you know, what are the best styles of engagement? How do you get to know people you work for? Um, having a great manager is just the key to it all. So I feel like that training investment has to be pretty high. Um, and then also I believe, you know, there's that 70-20-10 rule that you know, 10% of training comes from book training, 20% comes from interacting, and then 70% has to come from experience. Um, it's, it's hard, and you're going to fail a little bit. And so we have to have a certain tolerance of failure to let managers and people practice this together and then keep 
constantly correcting, keep those feedback loops so you can just constantly improve. And so I think this is, there's no magic pill. And some management trainings will say, oh, if you just do the X, Y, and Z, everything's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. This is about experience and working with people, different personalities, different um, age ranges, diversity, really getting to understand people, what motivates them. It is a harder way of management. Skill set differences as well. Yeah, skill set differences. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, you just, it has to, there has to be a patience to it and a tolerance of failure and a commitment to continuous improvement. It's not a program, you know, we were talking, I was using that metaphor earlier, like there's an operating system and an app. Um, management training is not an app you bolt on to a company. It's part of the way you work. It's part of the mindset. And so constantly working on it. Um, is really important. The most successful years, or New Belgium in particular, had the highest stock value, the highest revenue growth, the highest profitability. The years preceding those, had, we had the highest scores on democratic management. There's a value proposition here. It's not completely altruistic. You make more money when people enjoy their jobs and can make good decisions. So yeah, if you have managers that can't do it, that whole <coughs> equation is broken. It's Interesting, there's a, a term that we use, T3, train the trainer. Um, I think the, the worst assumption that we can make, you know, because you, you know, if you carry the, the bag or if you carry the title, the worst assumption you can make is that they actually know how to do it or how to be a good yeah, manager. And it's just not true. Yeah. And, and, and typically folks that get promoted into things is they were actual individuals contributors that did really well themselves and they say, hey, you would make a great manager. And then they get in that management position and they fail miserably. Or they remain in that position and continue to fail but impact everybody else that gets connected to them. It's the worst thing ever. And so, you know, we were talking earlier and I talked about this idea of being able to inspire people. And in order to do that, you do have to understand the individuals that you're dealing with. And, and you can't manage everyone the same way because they're different people. You know, there's a way that you have to be fair, but I can't manage. It's just like raising my kids, you know, I can't manage them the same way because they can't handle it. Right, they're totally you know two different kids, and so you guys understand that dynamic, and so um, I think it does require a lot of courage and 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 for us to go in and really make sure that our leaders are actually leading and actually you know inspiring. You know, I, I talked about earlier, the work is the work, and it has to get done. Everybody had a job description; they signed the dotted line, and for that, you got this check, right? But our ability to be able to work with people, to genuinely care for people, because I think the most effective leaders and managers actually care. It's not just a job. You have to care about people in order to be able to inspire them, and then that helps to create this winning dynamic or success, in my opinion. To, uh, to go back to the, to the uh, earlier question, uh, we wanted to hear, uh, I had asked the question, what do we need policymakers to do? But actually this much better question from the audience is what do policymakers need to hear from you about the challenges of running your businesses or and accomplishing what you want to accomplish? Um, from the small business perspective, yeah. I actually sit on a council in New York. And I, I'll tell you, I think that uh, one of the biggest things if a policymaker is going to work on and create a program for business, small or otherwise, that program can't be a 700-page 
document, I'm not kidding, uh, with tons of red tape in order, I mean, this just is very prescient because this happened very recently with, in New York, but you know, it's the programs that are provided, if, if a business says this is the program we need, then the program that comes back to us needs to be like one page long and has to be fully subsidized and we need to be able to see the financial value at the end. I think that's one thing. I, and, I, and you know, interestingly in my industry, uh, there are a lot of us who want certain things to be legislated. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll give you a great example, the tip credit in California and New York. Every business owner I know in those two states just wants the state to say, this is it. And what's going on in these two states is that the owners get to decide. So I don't know if you know what a tip credit is, but in New York, uh, minimum wage is $15 an hour. If you're a server, you have to make a basic $12 an hour, and your tips have to add up to $15 an hour. Um, and if they don't, the company is responsible for adding that $3 an hour. And what's been going on is certain companies have taken away tips, which is servers have not liked. Uh, certain companies have just added all sorts of tip lines for their back of house staff and they're paying their back of house staff with this tip credit. It's just bananas like this, you know, so there's certain things where I just really want policymakers to legislate that because from a consumer facing perspective, consumers are cons confused and it's just adding to the confusion it adds confusion for business owners. And then the other thing, it's like, let's work on some real issues. You know, I'm a giant number of employees in New York City are hourly wage earners. You know, there are a million hospitality employees. Number one issue is daycare. Like, you know, I luckily live in a city, city with universal pre-K. We need universal daycare. I mean, that is like the number one reason people don't show up to work and it's, and it's really frustrating. So I think that's what I have to say about that. I kind of, you know, for ESOPs, I know we'd all love to have a more productive relationship with the Department of Labor. Um, ESOPs need to be regulated. You know, yeah. we want to set a really high bar. So, you know, that's there. But I just don't feel like that relationship's always productive. But then I'm going to have a almost more cynical view on it. Is um, it's not just about engagement. It's about giving employers a voice. You know, so there's lots of opportunities maybe to get your voice in the room, but to feel like people aren't really listening to you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of you're going to spend an afternoon doing something, What's, what does it matter? Is it somebody just having a listening session? Um, you know, so that's happened a lot. And it can be exhausting as an employer because you have your business to run, you have stuff to do, you have people to take care of. And then to go to a committee that is put up kind of more as a, yeah, that. Finishing <laughs> today, air quotes. Um, yeah, you know, so I think if they really want to engage, it has to, there has to be some weight behind it and to really put work committees. You know, I know in Colorado, um, Governor Jared Polis has put together a committee on worker ownership and one of the, the commissioners on it. And I feel like he's truly actually trying to bring the voice in, but he definitely had that as part of his agenda when he ran for governor. Um, you know, Missouri. Um, they put an ESOP legislation in place at the state level um, for income taxes. It was really helpful, you know. So having helpful legislation that really matters, but engaging people in a way that the voice matters, not just that the voice is heard. And with smaller businesses, do you often probably have to, to pool your resources and kind of uh, organize as a group yeah. in order to get this done? Well, you know, in the ESOP world, we have the ESOP Association mm -hmm. that helps. Um, the Brewers world, you have the Brewers Association that helps. So we engage through the sure. associations. 
more than individually as businesses. Sure, sure. Same as. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, my opinion, I, I mean, I don't have really strong, you know, feedback to add other than what I shared, you know, originally, but I think that it's somewhat, you know, similar in other ways. And I think that, you know, legislation can really help to uh, give uh, larger corporations the courage, you know, to actually do something and, and jump in, right? I mean, yeah, we didn't have anyone, you know, at Aon or Accenture, you know, to, to tell us to do it. We just saw that, you know, there was an opportunity to match, you know, talent with, you know, this forthcoming, you know, challenge that we're all going to be for, you know, for, uh, faced with. And so you had to really do something about it. But think if, uh, you know, through legislation that they allowed to, you know, give uh, a lot more firms the courage to do it because some just won't try because they just uneducated or they, they're scared or they feel like there's something to lose. And I think that's the, the wrong way, you know, to think about it. So if they can give something that would help, at least uh, mitigate, if you will, the risk that they are perceiving that they might have. I think it could open up some incredible doors, and it can uh, create, you know, um, you know, uh, an incredible windfall that they didn't expect. I think about, um, you know, some of the stories that I hear, you know, from some of these young adults that are coming through our doors. I mean, this is not just a job. This is changing a life, right? It's changing how they look at the world. They're going back into their communities and people are seeing them knotted up, they're seeing them dressing differently, they're seeing them you know, act differently, and it creates curiosity of those others and they look at it and say, I want some of that, right? And so it starts to perpetuate something that's really special and you know, I call it, it's like the collateral goodness, <laughs> right, of these good jobs you know, that happen all because someone had the courage to do something that was good. And it was good for business, ultimately. I think that's a pretty strong note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much to our panelists. And I want to welcome Maureen Conway back to the podium. Yeah, thank you all so much. Thank you, uh, Matt, for moderating. And thank you all. And I want to thank all the speakers today who really Wow, we got a lot to think about today. So, um, so I'm super impressed with that. I also, I also want to thank um, all the team here, right? So these are complicated events to put on. It's you know, there's the people serving the food, there's the people who check you in, there's the mics passing around, there's all the prep that goes into getting ready for this. Um, so there's so many people. There's all of our our wonderful Aspen colleagues managing the cameras and AV and everything. So I, I just really want to thank all of them. There's a huge amount of work. So thank all of them so much. Um, uh, I, I want to just say this is like, this is our first event. This is just a taste. There's lots more to come. And in fact, the next one to come is on uh, November 13th. Uh, so we'll be talking about the book, Making of a Democratic Economy, with the author and a couple of the uh, organizations featured in the book, and I think that'll be a really rich conversation, so I hope you'll come back. Um, and I also want to mention, uh, you know, we've been talking a little bit about the work that we do in the Economic Opportunities Program, and really these events kind of build on our experiences out in communities. If you didn't get a chance to pick this uh, this little flyer up, you can learn a little bit 
uh, more about our work. And also, if you didn't get a chance to pick up this little flyer about the Upskill America event, we're going to be celebrating uh, five years of Upskill America's work, um, uh, engaging corporate America and investing in their frontline workforce. So um, we're excited about that in January, and you can learn more about that as well. Um, but it is now my great pleasure to hopefully uh, welcome you to a reception, and we can uh, talk some more over drinks and hors d'oeuvres. So please stay and join us for that. Thank you.